Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher whom I've been reading his sermons on the Sermon on the Mount, and so I keep quoting him because he's so quotable, has a quote that I think is great to start off with, on earth as it is in heaven. He says, we begin by asking in this prayer that the name of God be hallowed among us. And we looked at that last week and the week before, that God's name would be hallowed. But the moment we pray, says Lord Jones, the moment we pray that prayer, we're reminded of the fact that his name is not hallowed among us. At once the question arises, why do not all men bow before the sacred name? Why is not every man on this earth concerned with humbling himself before the presence of God and worshiping him? and using every moment in adoring him and spreading forth his name. Why not? The answer, of course, is because of sin. Because there is another kingdom. The kingdom of Satan. The kingdom of darkness. And here at once we're reminded of the very essence of the human problems and the very human predicament. Our desire as God's people is that God's name would be glorified. But the moment we start with that, says Lloyd-Jones, we're reminded that there is an entire world, an entire cosmos, diametrically opposed to God and His glory and His name. I agree. When we pray, then that God's name would be hallowed. We are praying that God as Lord and as King over all existence would be honored and glorified as such. He's the one true God, the only divine sovereign. They're intimately connected in that the second is the logical outworking of the first. Father, hallowed be your name. And what I mean by that, O Lord, is, O God, that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you see the connection? Now, to be clear... The force of this prayer, this this second petition that his kingdom would come, I think will be better grasped if we first see what it doesn't mean. For instance, when Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done, he isn't necessarily leading us to ask that God's universal sovereignty would be exercised. The reality is that God's will is always being accomplished. There's never a time and there never will be a time where the will of God is somehow frustrated. Kevin read and prayed for us earlier this morning from that great chapter in Daniel, Daniel chapter 4, where we see Nebuchadnezzar give a remarkable statement, a, a theological treatise almost, if you will, where he exclaims that God does whatever he wants according to his will both in heaven and on earth. And no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So that when Jesus is teaching us here to pray, God, may your will be done, it's not, strictly speaking, a request that God would make sure his will gets accomplished. God's already going to do that. He's he's God. It's unintelligible. It it, it makes no sense to think that there's a possibility that what God desires to accomplish will somehow not be accomplished. This, of course, raises the thorny and difficult issue of 
Why is there sin in the world? If God's will is always accomplished, then why are there so many people not obeying God, not submitting to God, and quite frankly, going against the will of God? Well, the answer isn't this. Oh, poor God. He's up there in heaven just just trying his hardest. We've sure made a mess of things down here, and I do hope that one day God would figure it out. No. God had it figured out from before the foundation of all the cosmos. From eternity, God had it figured out. Part of the answer then is that all of this, all that we've seen, that we've experienced, and, and the ups and downs and the troubles of life, all of this is and always has been a part of God's perfect will. We deeply affirm as Christians the profound truth of Romans 8.28 that God works all things according to the counsel of His will. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 46 verse 11 is crystal clear. He says this, The counsel of God shall stand, and He will accomplish all His purpose. He has spoken, He will bring it to pass, and all that He brings to pass He will do as He has purposed it. That's conclusive. So when we pray, our Father, your kingdom come, your will be done. In one sense, sure, we're kind of already echoing the reality of what is. God's will will be done. But it's not strictly a prayer that God would accomplish his will. There's something more to it. I think that something more is wrapped up in that word kingdom. Your kingdom come. So, God's kingdom is, properly speaking, the place where God's kingly rule is acknowledged. That's the first thing we want to see about this petition. The kingdom is where God's kingly rule, it's the place where God's kingly rule is openly acknowledged. So, is God king over all things? And is he king over all people? Yes. But is God's kingly rule acknowledged by all people? No. Or the reality is that in God's divine providence, he has allowed opposition. He's been patient with rebellion. And so even though God rightly and really does rule over all things and over all people, sovereignly allowing believers and unbelievers alike to only do what he allows them to do. In another sense, he has not yet allowed all people to acknowledge his kingly rule. Do you see the distinction? So if we could think of this in spatial terms, which is kind of tough and almost impossible to do, we could ask, is Christ acknowledged to be our king right here, right now? Yes. We as a congregation of Christian believers, men and women who have submitted our lives to Christ as Lord. We all proclaim and exalt the name of Christ our King. Uh, Nick just proclaimed uh, explicitly that he has submitted to Christ, his King. We sing about it in our songs. We pray to God in the name of our Savior and King Jesus. And, And we proclaim by preaching his word. This is the authoritative word of the King which is meant to rule and guide us in all of our life. 
Everything we do here this morning is done in explicit acknowledgement that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is our King. But does the Greenbelt Co-op down the street acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Sovereign King? The answer is no. They make no mention of him. They may even, you know, allow messages that oppose the kingly rule of Christ to be proclaimed within their premises. They might even be okay with hiring somebody or or bringing into their membership someone who is living a life in clear rebellion against Christ as king. Be it some kind of sexual sin or anything really which stands opposed to who Christ is and what he's commanded. And that's okay, they do that. My point here isn't to say, oh, you better stop shopping at the co-op. No, I love the co-op. I'll go there and I'll buy things this week. Even though we here are not of this world, we're, we're, we're still deeply involved in the world, right? And my point here is that there's a real distinction between those people and those institutions who know and submit to King Jesus and his word versus those people and places that don't. The Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel we've been looking at for the last few weeks where we find the Lord's Prayer, has as one of its main themes this idea of the kingdom of God. It's throughout the whole book. Matthew talks about it mostly and refers to it as the kingdom gospel. The very first line of the book of Matthew reverberates with this theme where Matthew introduces Jesus Christ as the son of King David. So here's Jesus, the long-awaited Davidic king whose kingdom will not end as was promised back in the Old Testament. And because the true king has come, well, Jesus can announce, and he does begin to announce in the Gospel of Matthew that indeed the kingdom is at hand. It's here. When John the Baptist sees Jesus approach him in Matthew 3, he proclaims the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. And this theme runs straight through, climaxing in Jesus' death. We're there in ironic mockery. Jesus is exalted, not upon a throne, but upon a cross, clothed in purple, crowned with the crown of thorns, and as the nations before him below cry out jokingly, here's Jesus, King of the Jews. This gives way, of course, to Jesus' triumphant resurrection where right before his final exaltation to the right hand of the Father, he proclaims, now as resurrected king, in the very last line of the Gospel of Matthew, that he indeed has all authority in heaven and on earth. And then he says this, he he gives that authority to his disciples, to his church, to his representatives here on earth who acknowledge him as king, and he says, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe and obey all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's God's kingdom. It's a kingdom ruled by Christ where he sits enthroned now in heaven, but it's now only partly realized here on earth. Here on earth, that heavenly kingdom only has outposts, little local embassies, if you will. And this is why the Bible calls all Christians within a a local embassy, a local church, it calls us ambassadors, right? We are the king's representatives. We are the spokespeople for King Jesus and his kingdom. 
We are imploring the nations, our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, our family, everybody to come and become citizens of Christ's kingdom. Now, before he comes back as a conquering king, and we know he's coming back, don't we? We know one day every knee will bow. Every knee will openly acknowledge Christ as king. But until that day comes, we invite, we witness, we evangelize and proclaim the message of the king. We are, as citizens of that heavenly kingdom, going out into all the earth and making disciples for the king. That's all that's wrapped up here when Jesus teaches us to pray, Our Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As D.A. Carson explains, to pray the words, your kingdom come, is to pray that God's saving reign will be expanded even now. And much more that God will usher in the consummated kingdom of heaven. Or as we read earlier, uh, the opening of our service, the central passage in all of Revelation, it's looking forward and praying for that day when the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, where he shall reign forever and ever. As a side note, I think this is exactly why we take so seriously the Bible's call for membership and for ongoing discipleship and for church discipline. When a congregation votes in a member, as we've just done this morning, they are voting in another fellow representative of Christ. If the local church is the presence of the kingdom of God here on earth, if if this local body is, is one of the ways in which God's rule is inbreaking from heaven on earth, then it matters supremely that the members of a local church be people who have submitted to Christ. Membership and citizenship in heaven go hand in hand. This is why the elders conduct membership interviews to see if those who are seeking to become members are really people who have given themselves over to following after Christ. This is why we encourage one another daily to keep on seeking after Christ and submitting our lives to him. When you see a brother or a sister or a pastor acting in such a way that clearly stands in opposition to Christ, up and encourage one another so that we can maintain a pure witness to an outside kingdom and dark world looking in. This is why when we give ourselves over to sin and as members of a church, we might act unrepentantly high-handedly and willfully going after and enjoying our sin. It's the church's duty then to discipline that person. And in protection of the church's gospel witness, say, say to the outside world and say to that brother, no, that's not what a citizen of heaven looks like. That's not what submission to Christ looks like. Outside world, we don't want you to be confused. Adultery is not submitting to Christ. That's not the power of the gospel. We discipline that unrepentant person in order to keep the witness pure. We do it also, hopefully, to encourage that person to repent and take seriously their sin and to come back in. And we'll welcome, back, we'll welcome them back in with open arms and love. But you see here the relationship between representing as witnesses to the kingdom of heaven and our walk together 
as a local church, as members one another. Jesus later in the book of Matthew goes on to tell us that whatever the church binds here on earth is also bound in heaven. Christ's heavenly rule and authority becomes mediated in and through his church. So according to the New Testament, the local church is the kind of inaugurated kingdom of heaven here on earth. The kingdom of God is beginning to reign and beginning to sink its roots into this world, first and foremostly through the church. So, as the church grows and, and, and the church universal strengthens, so the kingdom grows and the kingdom strengthens. When you talk with your neighbor, perhaps on Monday afternoon after work, and, and you get to talking to him about the gospel that you've just been meditating upon all Sunday afternoon after church, and, 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 and you invite them to come and hear that gospel a little bit more at church. I heard this message. Do you want to come hear it too? It's great. And, and then they come, and they hear it. They begin to believe it by God's grace. And then they say, yeah, I believe that. I, I believe in Jesus Christ. And, and so we say as a church, yes, this is great. You know what you should do? You should get baptized. That's the first thing our king has commanded us to do. Get baptized in his name. This baptism is kind of like your passport into the embassy. It's your brand new ID of heavenly citizenship. And so you get baptized into Christ's church. You become a member. And right there, in that moment, that's the kingdom of heaven growing. You see? When we pray, our Father, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are praying for the advance of the gospel for the reception of the gospel, for people everywhere to be in submission to the gospel and for our ongoing obedience to the gospel. How wonderfully that fits in too, right? With that first petition to hallow God's name. Lord, how should your name be hallowed? By rebels becoming repentant believers? By people following, falling in love with Jesus Christ? Those people who used to take the Lord's name in vain are now exalting the name of God, thankful for his grace and bringing them to believe in the name of Jesus. That's how God's name is hallowed. And all of that happens through our efforts of evangelism, through our efforts of bringing people into the local church, the very place where God's kingly rule is openly acknowledged. That's the first thing we see about praying for God's kingdom to come. The second thing that we need to see, though, is that by praying for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're praying for also a more fulfilled reality of that kingdom. There is a future fullness to God's kingdom that obviously isn't entirely present here and now. We still sin. We still need correction. I still preach bad sermons. That won't be the case in a future glorified heaven. So if each local church is the inaugurated presence of the kingdom of heaven, if we are the outpost and embassy of Christ's rule, well, then it's also true that there is a future consummation to God's incoming kingdom. Early Christians were eager for Jesus' power and authority to be, to be manifested through them 
and to be manifested through the church in their daily witness and evangelism. But it doesn't take long to see, as you read through the New Testament, that they were even more eager for Jesus' return. The early church, which so vehemently prayed like they do in 1 Corinthians 16, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. Or as Peter tells us, they were constantly looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, a final home of righteousness. Indeed, the very last book of the Bible, the very last verse in the last book of the Bible, Revelation concludes with this prayer, come, Lord Jesus, come. Praying then that God's kingdom would come is to pray that the end would come. I wonder how that makes you feel. Are you often praying, Lord, bring the end now? For a number of us, though we may kind of agree theologically that, yeah, the the end's coming, that there is a point where God will finally bring full justice and his final reconciliation, I wonder if we're also not a bit unnerved by that prayer. Throughout the centuries, and even now in parts of the world, unfriendly parts of the world to Christianity, followers of Jesus are suffering and have been suffering savage persecution. And they pray this prayer with meaning and fervor. But I suspect that our comfortable pews often mock our sincerity when we repeat that phrase today. We would have no objection to the Lord's return, provided he holds off just a little bit more and lets us finish our degree. Lord, come, Lord Jesus, come. But can you just wait until I find that perfect man and get married? Help me kind of get this raise and enjoy retirement a little bit more sweetly to see my grandchildren. It needs to be asked, do we really hunger for the kingdom to come? Are we really longing for the righteousness of heaven to be present now upon earth? Or are we just as happy and excited to waddle through the swamp of our insincerity and ever-present unrighteousness? Perhaps you're here this morning as someone unfamiliar with Christianity and the claims of Jesus Christ. And and as you hear this petition of, of his full kingdom coming and this consummation of all things, you're not quite sure what to make of it all. May I suggest that you first take seriously who Jesus Christ claimed to be himself. That he came, that he came and he proclaimed himself to be the divine son of God who took on flesh. He became a human being to live among us and to live for us. The gospel witnesses state that he not only lived a perfect and sinless life, but that he also did many miracles, kind of corroborating his insistence that he was indeed God himself. The historical witnesses of the Gospels that we have tell us that he was arrested precisely because he called himself God. And that in fact he was convicted and killed on these kinds of charges. And as he hung to die upon the cross, the Gospels are clear. All of our sin was imputed to him. He became in his death an atoning sacrifice for the world. God as a man dying for men to bring them back to God. And then the greatest miracle happened. He got back up from the dead. He died, but he didn't stay dead. 
the closing argument, if you will, and the evidence of his actually being who he said he was, that he was resurrected from the dead. This was indeed the divine son of God. And what he did on the cross was good for us and it, it worked. And then, and then he showed himself to countless other witnesses, walking and talking and eating with others. A, a number of these witnesses actually wrote down their accounts for us. And, and, and we have them now in the Bible. Books, which especially in their own day, served as character witnesses. It gives names of actual people who actually saw the risen Jesus Christ. People, if you were reading it when it was first published, you could say, I know Rufus. He lives so-and-so here in Jerusalem. I'll go ask him. Did you really see Christ resurrected from the grave? Yes. Witnesses who were willing to die, and in fact did die, on account of what they saw and believed to be true. Jesus is God, and he is alive right now. The Gospels in the New Testament tell us that Jesus ascended back to his Father in heaven, but not without promising that he'd come back. In the meantime, he charged his witnesses. He charged his church to go out and to tell the world about him, calling everyone everywhere to believe and trust in Jesus Christ and what he did upon the cross, promising to them that by believing in Christ, all their sins would be forgiven. All their guilt against God would be taken away. But that there was a time where this offer would run out, where Jesus, as exalted king, would come back and finally set up his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. If you're here this morning as someone who has not yet put their faith in Jesus Christ, friends, here's the good news for you. You can do that now, right now. You can simply go to God right now in prayer, addressing him as Father and asking him to forgive you for all your sins because of what he's done in Jesus Christ. You can say, Lord, I believe this. I believe and I trust in your son, Jesus, and I have no righteousness outside of him, I'm giving myself to you. But friends, there's, there's a warning with this good news, isn't there? You cannot resolve yourself to put this off indefinitely. Jesus has promised that he's coming back, and that when he does, he will finally deal with and bring to an end all sin, all rebellion, and all unbelief. Jesus offers himself to you now as your savior, commanding you as a, as a soon coming conquering king for your allegiance. Believe in him now before he comes as your final judge. When Christ's kingdom comes, the reality of verse 10 will be everywhere present. God's will will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. The arrival of King Jesus will usher in an eternal and a perfect accomplishment of the Father's will, now acknowledged among all men. There will be no more rebellion. There will be no more disdain for God and his people. There will be no more submission to faulty philosophies and, and warped worldviews. No more evil governments. No more corrupted leaders. No more societal injustices. No more secret sins. No more oppression, no more hurt children, no more broken hearts, no more broken relationships, no more broken promises, 
No more jealousy, no more hatred, no more cowardice, no more lying, no more shame, no more guilt, no more pride, no more sin at all. All things and all people will now live in acknowledged submission to the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And for those of us who have submitted ourselves now, who love him now, we will do so then in eternity with all joy and delight and complete happiness. It will be our utmost satisfaction to have all of ourselves submitted to all of Christ. We long for that now. We groan for it inwardly. Our our own weaknesses, our own throughout the week constant insincerity and hypocrisy causes us to look forward with broken and groaning hearts, but also to do so with joyful expectation to the day that when our whole being will be finally redeemed and we're brought into full obedience to our good God and Father, we won't be able to sin anymore. We pray now, our Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Precisely because we're so painfully aware of how far short we fall of those ideals. Friends, when we pray this prayer, we're not only committing ourselves as Christians to at least knowing God's will for us, knowing what the scriptures teach and what God has revealed for us and his perfect will revealed throughout the Bible. But we're also committing ourselves to obeying that will, are we not? If my heart's hunger is that God's will be done, then praying this prayer is also my pledge that so help me God by your grace, I will do your will. His will is by partaking together in the Lord's Supper. This time I would like to call up the deacons who will be helped distributing the Lord's Supper to come up front. The Lord's Supper is His will for us as a church in submission to His will. Jesus, before going to the cross to take our sins as our divine sacrifice, commanded His disciples, and and thus He commanded us, His church, to celebrate often the Lord's Supper. He took bread And after breaking it, symbolically showing the way in which his body would be broken, he gave it to his disciples and he said, Take, eat, this is my body. He also took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave them wine, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of your sins. And then Jesus ends this time of promise concerning the future of God's kingdom. He says, I tell you the truth. I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Celebrating the Lord's Supper is not only looking back to the cross and remembering what Jesus accomplished for us in his death, in his shed blood, but it's also as we partake of it together, looking forward with eager anticipation to that final coming of his kingdom. When Jesus returns, he will eat And drink with us the fruit of a new creation. An eternal feast and supper where all things are now submitted again to his rule. The Lord's Supper looks forward when peace, shalom, will forever reign underneath the Prince of Peace himself. So the deacons come and help distribute the bread. Please 
take and eat of it right then and right there. If, if you're here as a visitor and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been baptized and you're a member of another gospel-believing church, then you are welcome to partake with us and enjoy the Lord's Supper as we as the universal body of Christ partake together. And if you're here this morning and you have not yet given your life to Christ, submitting to him as your king and as your savior, we ask that you please allow the elements to pass. They have no bearing upon you. This supper is to be taken as a sign and a seal of our union with and in Jesus Christ. So as we eat the bread, Christ, uh, the bread becomes one with our bodies, just as by faith Jesus is now one with us and we in him. As we drink the cup, we're reminded that his atoning blood now cleanses us from sin. So if you have not yet submitted to Christ and been cleansed by his death and sacrifice, again, please allow these elements to pass. Let us use this time now to meditate upon Christ our Savior. Let's ask God for forgiveness of sin, joyfully resting in Christ and the salvation he's accomplished for us can distribute likewise. At this time, before we distribute the cup, I'd like all the members of Greenbelt Baptist Church to now stand, and we will recite together our church covenant found in the back of the red hymnal. The Lord's Supper not only reminds us of our union in Christ, but it also testifies to our union with one another. This sacrament bolsters our unity together. And so it's good for us to be reminded and and kind of recite together the covenant we've made with one another. For those who are not members, uh, please remain seated. But you can follow along by reading silently the covenant fed as we believe by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we do now in the presence of God, angels, and this assembly most solemnly and joyfully renew our covenant with one another as one body in Christ. We engage, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk together in Christian love, to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort, to promote its prosperity, spirituality, and to sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. We engage to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. We also engage to maintain family and secret devotions, to educate our children religiously, to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances, to walk circumspectly in the world, and to be just in our dealings, faithful in our battling, backbiting, and excessive anger, to avoid all immoderate behavior leading to intoxication as being harmful to oneself, detrimental to others, and contrary to the life to which we have been called in Christ, and to be zealous in our efforts, to advance the kingdom of our Savior. We further engage to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember each other in prayer, to aid each other in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy in feeling and courtesy in speech, 
to be slow to take offense and mindful of the rules of our Savior to secure reconciliation without delay. We moreover engage that when we remove from this place, we will as soon as possible unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. (coughs) As the cup is now being distributed, we ask that you wait to drink it until everyone has received their cup, and then when we will, at the end, drink of it together. And while the cup is being passed, let's sing together from hymn number 404, the communion song. Let's pray. We ask for your forgiveness of our sins. And we look forward with pure joy and eager anticipation to the consummation of your kingdom. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let us drink together. I want to remind you all that there is an offering being taken up for benevolence right after the service. Uh, There will be an usher walking back to the door right now. Now, This money is devoted specifically to helping those within our care who are in need, have any acute issues where we as a church can provide special care for them. So that's just a reminder. Uh, Let me end by pronouncing now our benediction. Our Father, we pray and we ask that you would bless us and keep us good, but lead us to long even more for our presence with you. In the name of Christ, our Prince of Peace, amen.